0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this uh, session of Adelaide Writers Week 2022. My name is Ben Brooker, and today we are here for a session with Michael Pollan, um, who will shortly be joining us from sunny San Francisco. We'll be in discussion today primarily about Michael's book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. Um, Before I go on, I do want to acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains, and pay respects to elders past, present, and future. We recognize and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. So just a reminder, as if anyone could forget, we are living in COVID times, um, so please um, obey any directions. Um, In that regard, wear masks if at all possible and maintain social distancing. Uh, We ask that you support the authors that are speaking um, over the course of this week by purchasing books at the tent. Unfortunately, Michael is a long way away and won't be able to sign copies of the book, but it will be for sale after this session. So Michael Pollan is a writer, teacher, and activist. His most recent book is This Is Your Mind on Plants. He is also the author of How to Change Your Mind, What The New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence, which was published in 2018. His previous books include Cooked, Food Rules, In Defense of Food, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and The Botany of Desire, all of which were New York Times bestsellers. Several of Michael's books have been adapted for television, including Cooked, The Botany of Desire, and In Defense of Food. In 2010, Time Magazine named Pollen one of the 100 most influential people in the world. It's a real privilege to um, be presenting this session today. So can you please join me in warmly welcoming Michael Pollan?
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. I really wish I were there in person. Um, I didn't realize you guys were going to meet without me. Um, I would have come. I've always heard great things about this particular book festival uh, from other writers, so uh, I'm very sorry not to be with you.
0: Well, it's a great shame that you couldn't be here, Michael, but as I was saying, it's a, it's a great privilege to have you here via the magic of the, the internet. Um, I wanted to start by asking you a question that I suspect will be on the minds of a, a few people here today, and that's, um, how does a respectable writer known mostly for his work on the sociology of food come to be trying the smoked venom of the Sonoran desert toad in his 60s?
1: <laughs> Good question. Uh, it was, certainly wasn't part of my life plan. Um, but uh, And I never thought that I'd be exploring psychedelics in my 60s. Um, but it, to me, it sort of flows organically from other work I've done. Um, I mean, yes, I wrote several books about food, but my primary interest as a writer has, since my very first book, uh, which was called Second Nature, um, I've been interested in the human engagement with plants and, um, how we use them, uh, how we change them and how they change us. I've been very interested in, um, uh domestication. And, um, and the fact that we are, I mean, I began my writing as a gardener and I'm very interested in that participatory relationship with the natural world. So if you're, if that's what you care about and that's your kind of great meta subject as a writer, uh, the human engagement with nature and specifically plants, you're going to look at food because that's our most profound engagement with plants. Uh, we are completely dependent on them. Um, but, there are other things that we we depend on plants for, and one of them is to change consciousness. Um, there is there is only one known culture on this earth that doesn't have some plant or fungi uh, they use to change consciousness, and that could be as you know routine as coffee and tea, which ninety percent of us are involved with on a daily basis to more extreme kinds of consciousness change, such as those, uh, you know, afforded by a psilocybin mushroom. So what is that desire about? Why do, why are we not content with everyday normal consciousness? Um, and what's in it for these plants that have figured out how to, how to um, produce molecules that fit so snugly into human neuro, uh, neuroreceptors. Um, so, You know, for me, it's part of this extended exploration of this amazing uh, and awe-inspiring relationship of people and plants.
0: So you you open this book, Michael, by asking what at first seems like a fairly straightforward question, which is, what what is a drug? And um, I was quite struck by something the French philosopher Jacques Derrida said about this, which was essentially that drugs are not a scientific construct. They're a, um, a, a moral and political construct. And I suspect you would agree with that.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, the word drug is very slippery. Uh, in certain contexts, it means something illegal. In another context, it means something medicinal. Um, but we have, you know, foods that are, you know, we have, we have things that are on the edge of being food and drug. Um, you know, what do you call a placebo? What do you call chicken soup? Um, you know, a drug should be anything we ingest that changes us in some ways. And that goes for many foods as well. I mean, sugar. I mean, if you have kids... You know that sugar is a drug for children. Um, so it's very squishy concept. And certainly the drugs we demonize, um, that is very much a social and political construct. Um, the drug war, uh, which in America dates to 1970 or so, uh, and we in turn inflicted it on most of the rest of the world through a series of UN treaties. Um, we now know was inspired by president Nixon's desire to crush the anti-war movement and, um, harass communities of African-Americans. Uh, it was never a public health campaign. Um, and, and, and I, I quote in the book, one of his advisors who, who admitted this uh, years later. Um, but we fight the drug war in the name of public health. And, um, but if you look at what we choose to, um, Make illegal, and what we choose not to. I mean, alcohol does a lot, and tobacco does a lot more damage than most of the illicit drugs. Um, Nevertheless, those are legal, and um, and then you have drugs that carry very few risks, um, like cannabis, uh, that are illegal in many places, and um, so it's a very um, constructed category, without question, and it's constantly changing. Um, the first chapter in this book is about growing opium in my garden, uh, which is illegal if you know that's why you're growing opium. If you don't know why, you're, why that, that this flower produces that drug, you're fine. So n- now all of you are no longer free to grow opium poppies. I'm sorry. Um, but it is about the state of knowledge. Um, in my garden in Connecticut, where I was doing this 50 years ago, the farmer that preceded me on this land was known for making Applejack, uh, hard cider, um, and uh, uh, distilling it. And that was a federal crime um, in his time. And the women who fought to make alcohol a federal crime would kick back at the end of the day with their so-called women's tonics, uh, which were these patent medicines containing, guess what, opium and cannabis. And they thought nothing of it. So there's a, there's a deep arbitrariness to these categories and they need to be challenged.
0: Yeah, and just on that, I was thinking recently, Michael, about the title of your previous book on drugs, How to Change Your Mind. And I don't know how conscious you were of this, but it, it sort of occurred to me that that title works in in two slightly different ways. One is obviously you're talking about the way that psychedelics specifically alter human consciousness. But the other sense of that title, I think, is... And again, I don't know how much this was your intent, but it strikes me that the other part of that title is to do with changing people's perceptions about psychedelic drugs. And I would say that, you know, you're certainly one of the people who has done the most recently to to, to shift that needle because, um, you know, let's face it, these are not neutral substances, um, particularly LSD, but some of these other substances, psilocybin as well, that you write about, they come with an awful lot of cultural baggage, don't they? And so... I kind of wondered how much it was your intention to really um, change people's assumptions and prejudices about some of these drugs.
1: Well it wasn't my intention necessarily changing my own feelings. Because I approached psychedelics with the, uh, all that cultural baggage in my head. I was, you know the reason I had never used psychedelics as, as a young man was, uh, or as a student was because I had ingested all that um, fear and those stories, those memes, about how these drugs would send you, you know, it would be the trip from which you'd never return, or you'd end up in the psych ward, Uh, you'd have a psychotic break, you'd jump off a building. I believed all this stuff. Um, You know, that's what we were taught in school. And uh, so I was, you know, terrified of psychedelics. And then when I started reading about the fact that they were being used to heal people, Um, And that they were helping people with things like, uh, you know, the the terror of a cancer diagnosis or help with their depression or or obsessive compulsive disorder. I had such cognitive dissonance that these same substances that I'd been taught were so evil and destructive. was actually uh, healing people. Um, I had to explore how 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 is that? How does that come to be? Was what I knew about them wrong? And I, you know, before I tried any of these substances, um, you know, I wasn't a risk-taking twenty-year-old. I was, you know, almost sixty, and um, you know, I had a cardiologist. Um, you know, so I approached it very differently, and I did my due diligence to see, okay, well, how risky is psilocybin? magic mushrooms. And what I found out really surprised me. Um, I found out that, first of all, um, there's no lethal dose of psilocybin, or LSD for that matter, and and several other classic psychedelics. That was pretty stunning because almost every drug we take has a lethal dose. Uh, Acetaminophen has a lethal dose, and it's not that high, a lethal dose. Um, so that was a shock, um, and then I um, learned that they're not habit-forming, um, that you do not develop a desire to use psilocybin or LSD repeatedly, um, and to the contrary, actually. It, it's such a, it can be such a powerful experience, you don't want to go near it again for a while. Um, so that was surprising, um, and I did learn that there were psychological risks, um, that people at any risk for schizophrenia should definitely stay away. People with various uh, personality disorders, um, but that if you took the sub, if you took the drugs in the right setting, with it with a guide or a sitter, somebody who was sober and knowledgeable with you, um, the psychological risks were minimized, and there were ways to deal with things like bad trips, what we call bad trips. Um, and uh, so I had to unlearn all that, um, and you know, in my writing. I never lecture people. Um, I don't, you know, set out to change people's minds. I set out to take people on a journey with me. And if I change my mind, yeah, the chances are they may well change their minds. And many people who read this book did change their minds. Um, and I'm very gratified by that. Um, but part of the reason that happened wasn't because of the skill of my argument. It was because I too was very skeptical, very nervous and the reader gets to watch that evolution uh, as I have these experiences. And um, for some readers, that made them very curious to try this or or to wonder, well, maybe this could help my father who's struggling with a cancer diagnosis or my my child who's struggling with an eating disorder or whatever. And um, so it has definitely um, sparked a lot of interest on the part of a lot of people.
0: So, Michael, you mentioned the first chapter of This Is Your Mind on Plants, which focuses on opium specifically, and your attempts in the mid-1990s when you were living in rural Connecticut to grow opium poppies in your garden. Um, So your kind of account of that, or at least one version of your account of that, um, did appear in Harper's Magazine in the late 1990s. Um, But... What's really fascinating is that there was a part of your account that was excised in that original publication, which only now is being reinstated in this chapter. It's a it's an intriguing story. Would you mind telling us what happened? Because it's quite remarkable.
1: Sure. Yeah. This was so. My interest in drugs goes back. Plant drugs, I guess. Um, and in the mid in the late 90s i was gardening in northwest connecticut and writing essays and articles about my adventures in the garden uh, most of which were not as scary as this one Um, and a friend sent me a book an underground press book called opium for the masses and in this book uh, the author explained how you could from easily available seeds that you could get at the garden center uh, you could grow uh, opium poppies. And from these the heads of these poppies, you could make a narcotic tea, a poppy tea. Or if you wanted to slit them and collect the sap, you could actually make opium. And that's what opium is. It's the sap of the opium poppy. I was like, oh, I had no idea. Um, that's cool. I want to try this. I, I mean, I, I'll try anything in my garden once. And um, so I got in touch with this, and I thought I'd write a column about it. I was writing garden columns for the Times uh, at, at the time. Um, I got in touch with the guy who wrote the book, uh, Jim Hogshire, who's this underground press writer in Seattle, and, and got some tips from him and asked him for some seeds. And, um, and I plant my seeds and they come up and, you know, this is going to be a cute little article. And then I get word that Jim Hogshire has been arrested and that a SWAT team of Seattle policemen, uh, like 10 of them, bust into his apartment, throw him up against the wall um, and arrest him on uh, charges of manufacturing a controlled substance. Um, the evidence was uh, a box of dried poppy heads that he had bought at a florist shop and his book. The book proved the intent uh, that he was going to turn these um, these poppy seed heads, which you can buy in any florist shop, into this tea. And um, so they had the motive and they had the goods and they threw him in jail when i heard about this i was really nervous because i you know my email was on his hard drive i was doing the same thing i had i owned the book also so they could prove intent and uh and it started this kind of very scary paranoid period of my trying to figure out was the government going to come and bust me for (laughs) <laughs> for what I had in my garden and um, I learned along the way uh, about the drug war which I knew, I didn't know that much about and the late 90s this is during the Bill Clinton administration was really the height of the drug war uh, there was a million arrests that year um, they had tightened up uh, fines they had um, death penalty for drug kingpins which meant they were growing a lot of cannabis or whatever it was Um, And the government had unbelievable powers to wreck your life if they wanted to. Um, There were asset forfeiture laws in America, and there still are, by the way, um, that allow them to seize the property of anyone involved in a drug crime. Even if you don't know that somebody has planted cannabis in your yard or your kid is doing it, um, if the property is guilty of the drug crime, the police can seize it and use it for their own purposes. Um, so I had a lot to lose if I got arrested. Um, so the piece became a kind of parable of the drug war. I finished it. It was quite long at, in the end. Uh, and in it, I described harvesting the poppies and t- making them, making tea out of them and what it, what the tea was like. Um, it was a mild narcotic. And um, it's used in, at funerals in the... Um, uh, in the Arab world uh, to take the edge off everybody's grief. Um, uh, but, you know, this is not Oxycontin or anything. This is, this is quite mild. And um, anyway, when I handed in the article, I said to the editors at Harper's, look, we have to get a lawyer to take a look at this, because I am confessing to a federal crime, and, uh, I, you know, we should assess the risk. And a lawyer read it and concluded that I would be insane to publish this article in any form. Um, They then hired another lawyer, as magazines will do when they don't get the opinion they want. And this lawyer, who was a First Amendment lawyer, said, you must publish this for the good of the republic. (laughs) And and that left me in a real quandary. I didn't know what to do because I had not just me to think about, but my wife, my four-year-old son, our property, our house. Um, in the end, I decided to publish it, but I took out the two most the, the two passages most likely to antagonize the government, and that was the recipe on how you make poppy tea uh, and the and the so called trip report what it what it was like to uh, to take it. And, um, and then I got Harper's to indemnify me and they, they gave me this amazing contract where, uh, they said, if I did get arrested, they would not only defend me, but pay my wife a salary. And if they took my house, they would buy me a new house. So with those assurances, uh, and my wife's agreement, um, I published it. Uh, but I always felt bad about having self-censored. And, um, so the opportunity to republish it in its complete form was very exciting to me. And um, But the reason I really wanted to revisit this whole story was because I learned subsequently that something else was happening in the summer of 1996 when I was having my close call with the drug war. And that was that Purdue Pharma, the pharmaceutical company, also based in Connecticut, not far from me, um, had introduced OxyContin. And this drug, which they advertised as safer than most opiates and less addictive, neither of which were true, um, began the opiate crisis that is now ravaging um, uh, America. I mean, killed 100,000 people last year due to overdose. It began not with an illicit drug. It began with a legal drug, another example of how arbitrary these categories are. So... And in 1996, the government was uh, had their eyes not on the ball. Um, they were going after gardeners like me, and there were busts of other uh, people growing opiates at the time, um, while um, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, was approving this uh, this drug for use, and it was being aggressively marketed to doctors and patients all over America. So it became a parable of the drug war in another way. And um, You know, the biggest public health crisis we've had tied to drugs is the opiate crisis. And that, again, began with the pharmaceutical industry, not the image of your backroom drug dealer.
0: And actually, Michael, I I spoke to um, Patrick Radden-Keefe on Sunday, whose most recent book, Empire of Pain, is about the Sackler family and the opioid crisis. And one of the quite interesting things that he mentions in that book is that... One of the largest producers of opium in the world is australia it's there's quite a thriving industry in Tasmania, not too far from where i'm sitting so you know it it's very much a, a global export as as the um, as the war on drugs is itself
1: that's interesting. I did not know Australia was I know you know turkey Turkey is Iran has been um, uh, it likes it likes very dry conditions uh, so i'm kind of surprised about tasmania yeah i think it's, um, it's,
0: it's like the, the like the northern part of tasmania so it's uh, yeah so it's the climate is obviously just right and it's slightly counterintuitive i think to people here as you were saying i think we mostly associate um the, the growing of opium with with the middle east and with south america and other parts of the world but it's um it, it it's nice to be woken well, up to, to your own was, complicity in a way
1: Yeah, in your own backyard, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you say complicity, but opium illustrates a really important fact about drugs, that they are neither good nor evil, purely. Um, And that they are, you know, the opiates are a great blessing, too. I mean, surgery would be unimaginable without opiates. Um, Dental work would be unimaginable without opiates, much of it. Um, And for people who are dying in great pain, they are a blessing. Um, so, you know, the Greeks understood better than us, or, or we're, we're better at keeping two contradictory ideas in their head, but they called drugs pharmacon, a word that meant both poison and blessing. Um, and it's all a matter of context and dose. And, um, and we forget that. And we tend to want to put them in a box where they're all evil or all good. And um, that's just simply not the case. It's a much more ambiguous uh, story. Um, so you know, humans have been using opiates for 5,000 years. Um, they are—they've um, given enormous relief to you know millions of people. And yes, they have create they created—they've—they've caused problems for other people too. And and many people have overdosed. Um, But that's usually the result of accident of you know getting fentanyl when you think you're getting opiate you know you think you're getting opium or or um, heroin or whatever um but we have to keep in mind uh, that you know if 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 we could erase opium from the planet that would not be a good idea
0: and also i think it's true in many of these overdose cases that other drugs are involved and there you're talking about a sort of polydrug diagnosis, which obviously complicates the, the picture even further. And as you were talking, actually, I was thinking of something that I think um, Alexander Shulgin said, the sort of legendary pharmacologist, that all drugs can be abused and all drugs can be enjoyed. And that, I think, applies to even, you know, the most highly stigmatised drugs. I think you've done a lot to destigmatize um, psychedelics, which are now, I think, entering perhaps a new phase of respectability. But I think it's still genuinely challenging to some people to hear... Um, say someone like Dr. Carl Hart talk about his recreational yeah. use of, of, of heroin,
1: of heroin and cocaine. I yeah. know, and and I read that and I get my backup. Uh, heroin, you know, recreationally, um, and but he makes a case, um, and you know, our understanding of addiction too is is really uh, stoked in in propaganda. Um, you know, we're we're under the impression that these chemicals of their own uh because of their own inherent qualities exposure to them leads to addiction and that's simply not true um there was a famous set of experiments done in the 70s called the rat park experiments and um you know a lot of what we understand about addiction is based on these experiments where you give a rat a choice uh, of two levers one administers uh, a drug being researched to, the, to their bloodstream and the other sugar or water. And with uh, heroin and cocaine, uh, the rat will press the lever for the drug uh, endlessly until he's addicted or dead. And this has led us to believe that exposure to that substance will lead to you know these cravings, and that will lead to addiction and death. Um, but another researcher looked at the setup and said, you know, That's not a normal way for rats to live alone in a cage uh, with with a drug. Um, I wonder if rats would still prefer the drugs if they lived under better circumstances. So he created something called the Rat Park, which was a very pretty cage with lots of plants, lots of space, other rats to play with, um, toys. And lo and behold, the rats, they used a little bit of the the drugs, um, but they didn't. (laughs) You know the way you might have a cocktail at the end of the day. Um, uh, they did not get addicted. They did not die. Uh, they used the drug in a fairly uh, well. I don't. I can't speak for rats, but see, was seemingly responsible way. Um, and it it really showed that the use that the abuse of the drug was tied to their environment. And gee, could that be true in in places where people live in abject misery are more likely to use drugs and get addicted? Yeah, I think so. Um, In Vietnam, uh, American troops in Vietnam, something like 40% of them were addicted to heroin while in country. And there was enormous worry here that when they came home, uh, the the streets would be flooded with uh, drug addicts. Um, But all those addicts came home, and within a few months, uh, all but something like 10% of them were off the drugs. They'd simply stop using it, no problem, no withdrawal. Um, it was context dependent. Um, they needed it in, during the war and they didn't need it when they got home. Most of them, some of them, you know, did. I mean, there are people who are very prone to addiction or have their own reasons often involving trauma to become addicted. So, so addiction is not an automatic process. Um, like so much else about drugs, it's, it's more complicated than what we were taught in school.
0: So there are three parts to your to your book. The first we've touched on um, opium, which is a downer. Um, caffeine is the second part, which you describe as an upper and mescaline is the final part, which you rather delightfully describe as an outer. Um, and the only psychedelic I should add that makes an appearance in this book. Let's talk about caffeine though, because generally in your work, you're talking about your own experiences of being on some of these substances. In the case of caffeine, you do something quite different. You take yourself off of it. (laughs) And you quote Roland Griffiths, who's quite a well-known drug and alcohol researcher, who says that to understand your relationship to any substance, you first have to take away that substance. And um, you describe, in the end, your experience of taking I think three months off of caffeine. And then when you kind of treat yourself to your first coffee after that, you, you say that it was one of the most profound drug experiences that, that you've had. And, and that may seem counterintuitive to people because I suspect we, um, as a whole, barely think of caffeine as a drug at all. It's so ubiquitous.
1: Well, that's because that's why it's in the book. Um, I wanted to deal with uh, a plant medicine or drug um, that most of us think of as completely benign, uh, woven into our everyday lives, um, and that we are dependent on. Most of us are, you know, you could say addicted to caffeine, um, which is to say we we feel, we feel like shit when we get off it. And I did. Um, it was very hard to get off. It was much harder to get off caffeine than... Than to get on some of the other things I, I, I tried in my journalistic um, enterprise, um, but that was really interesting um, because. Uh, I, I did take three months, I had a fast caffeine, no coffee, no tea, no sodas, nothing, no chocolate, nothing with caffeine in it for three months. And it was really hard. Um, the first week was just miserable. And I didn't have the headaches and flu-like symptoms some people had, but I felt like muzzy and I felt like a veil had fallen between me and the world. And, um, but the, the interesting thing was I, I didn't feel like I was myself. And, and that's really curious, because I realized, and this is weeks into the experience, that myself, my default self, was a caffeinated self. And I had been drinking caffeine in one form or another since I was probably 10 or 12. Um, I started early. Um, and um, uh, my... my My normal consciousness is caffeinated consciousness. And without it, I just felt duller. I I felt um, uh, at a a kind of remove from reality. Um, And it was really instructive um, that this molecule has been, and it's so transparent compared to other drugs. It's very easy to not think you've been drugged at all on caffeine unless you take so much you're jittery. Um so anyway yes getting back on it it's almost worth getting off it to have that experience because for most of us when we have our morning cup of coffee the reason we feel good is not that we're getting a giant lift or dopamine hit or anything from it um it's because the symptoms of withdrawal that are just starting to set in in the morning you know you've heard you, you've talked to people who say you know i'm not civil till i have my coffee don't talk to me till i have my coffee they're in withdrawal. And, um, and to have those symptoms, um, alleviated with that first cup feels really good. And you feel like you're back to baseline. Um, but if you have no caffeine in your system, if you are a restored caffeine virgin, as I was after three months, that first cup is, is pretty powerful and really wonderful. I mean, I felt euphoric. Um, I felt, powerful. I felt like I had all this energy. Um, and I describe in the book, you know, wanting to put this energy somewhere and, and um, getting on my computer and, and um, uh, unsubscribing from like 75 listservs that just were clotting my inbox, something I would never do ordinarily. And then and then um, cleaning my closet, taking all the sweaters out and sorting them. And um, I just had all this all this energy. It was kind of amazing. Um, so it's sad that we can't get that on a daily basis, but you know, that's, that's part of the trade-off with a drug like that. You're either using it every day, which I now do again. I mean, I'm back on, uh, back on the wagon, um, with no, you know, no bad feelings about it. I mean, my intent was to go back on and, uh, and I really love coffee and tea um so but yes getting off a drug is really instructive Roland was right um you really can't understand what you're doing in fact Peter Singer said the same thing to me when I was writing about animal rights and animal liberation and he said I wanted to write an essay about it and I was interviewing him he said well you can't really understand your relationship with meat to meat until you get off it so he challenged me to stop eating meat for the duration of writing that piece um and it was helpful; it really was, because my interest in eating meat, which never went away, um, forced me to think really hard to see if I could defeat some of his arguments. And of course, he's much smarter than I am. Um, but uh, uh, so, yeah, it's a good—it's a good exercise, I think. Yeah, always. You know, to, I, I don't uh, know if this was your—it's own... it's Lent, you know.
0: I don't know if this was your intention, Michael, but I took that chapter as a challenge myself, and. I managed three weeks off of caffeine, not three months, I should say. And, I, and, and no word of a lie, it was much, much harder than giving up alcohol. Um, and actually I've spoken to quite a few people who have you know, embarked on this kind of caffeine challenge as well. It's, it's a wonder actually, Michael, you haven't been kind of sued by a big caffeine yet. You, they've they've <laughs> t- taken a big hit to their sales since your book came out, I'm sure.
1: Um, well, you know, a lot of people misread the book and assumed that I had a moral brief against caffeine because I had gotten off it. And I've had many people come up to me and, and uh, say, uh, you'll be very proud of me. I haven't had a cup of coffee in six months. And I'm like, I'm not proud of you. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we have a Puritan streak in America and giving things up, you get a lot of points for giving things up. get very few points for taking things off.
0: And. <laughs> um, So let's turn to the final part of the book, which is mescaline, um, a substance that you describe as the orphan psychedelic. Um, Aldous Huxley, of course, famously wrote about mescaline in The Doors of Perception, a substance that um, provoked him to um, observe and be in deep communion with the folds of his trousers, famously, for (laughs) an extended period of time. so we're in what's sometimes been called the psychedelic renaissance, and really at the heart of this renaissance is um, psilocybin and to a lesser extent, MDMA, which as you know, is not technically a psychedelic, but it kind of gets wrapped up um, in that these days. Yes. Why do you think mescaline has kind of been left out in that sense? What, you know, what, what, what do you think lies yeah, at the heart yeah, of that? It's Be, a good the, question. Yeah.
1: I, was, I was curious about it because um, there's no, re- there's very little research going on with mescaline. Um, it was the first psychedelic in the West. It was, you know, it was discovered uh, in the 1890s by scientists and they knew about its properties long before Albert Hoffman had created LSD. Um, but it sort of disappeared when LSD showed up. Uh, there are a couple reasons for that. I think one is that um, you need a lot more of it uh, to have a trip. You need like 400 milligrams, whereas LSD is measured in micrograms. And when you're dealing with illegal drugs, um, the intensity, uh, the amount of, you know, uh, power per unit of the drug um, dictates a lot. Uh, because if you get, you know, you want a drug that's very light, uh, that you can hide, uh, an LSD fit the bill. And um, mescaline, you need two fat capsules. Um, so that's, that's one reason. It's a very long trip. It's like 14 hours. Uh, That's another reason it doesn't fit into our busy lives. Um, Although LSD can take a long time too. Um, And uh, so it fell out of fashion and there are very few people who make it. And uh, it was um, hard to track down. Um, Although you can get it from these uh, cacti uh, from peyote and from uh, wachuma or San Pedro cactus, um, which I'm sure grows in Australia. so uh, it doesn't get enough attention uh, yet. I would I would talk to various psychonaut people I'd met in the course of writing this is your mind on plants, and I would often say, "So what's your favorite psychedelic?" These are people much more experienced than I am, and very often I would hear mescaline, um, and people would say it was the king of materials, and so I was very curious um, to try it, and uh, fortunately. Uh, uh, Um, somebody gave me some and uh, and I had the opportunity and it's it's very different kind of psychedelic. It's it doesn't uh, it doesn't it's not accompanied by lots of visual uh, stimulation or hallucinations. It's very much a here and now kind of drug. You, You just get completely absorbed in what's right in front of you. And um, so, you know, yeah, Huxley looking at the folds in his pants, I could stare at a bowl of apricots, which were just indescribably beautiful for, you know, I don't know how how long, but a long time. Um, And you can sink into the present and where you are and and experience it, music and and, uh, uh, visual stimulus that's um, very profound. And, uh, and wonderful, but it does go on way too long. I was like done with mescaline before it was done with me. But my goal in that chapter was not just to you know have a trip and report on it, although I did find I really enjoy writing about these experiences. Um, it was to explore the indigenous use of psychedelics, um, which I had not dealt with in How to Change Your Mind. How to Change Your Mind stayed very close to the science uh, and and, the, and this renaissance uh, of research, um, but you know, white people in the West did not invent psychedelics or discover them. They've been used by indigenous peoples for thousands of years. In the case of peyote in the Americas, uh, at least six thousand years. We have we have a six thousand year old sample of peyote, um, and American Indians have been using. Uh, this substance and, Mex- and Indians in Mexico as well. Um, and they use it in a very different way than we in the West have used psychedelics. Um, and it has a very different valence. It's actually a very conservative social force. You know, we think of psychedelics as being disruptive of our society, and, and indeed they were in the 1960s. But in the Native American community, they're used to heal, they're used to. Um, uh, resolve conflicts. They're, um, they're used in a group setting, um, and they are uh, used in a very responsible way. Even children are given small doses of it. And the idea is to get everybody on the same mental wavelength so that their prayers for the person that is being healed um, are as powerful as they can be. And there's a hypnotic, uh, you know, r- rhythm of, of drumming that goes with it, and it's a very stern, um, ascetic kind of experience where everyone is sitting up, and you're not allowed to get up, um, and you have to stay in that position, and you have to stare at the fire the whole time. Um, it's a very—it's uh, not a hedonistic or Dionysian experience in any way, um, but it has done more to sustain. Uh, continuity in American Indian tribes, several of them, and allowed them to preserve their culture over a long period of time, a culture that was being, you know, of course, deliberately destroyed um, by um, the the federal government. Um, The Native American church uh, kept Indian identity alive uh, in the early 20th century. Um, So... I also wanted to see what could we learn from the indigenous use of psychedelics? And I think quite a bit. Um, and you know, as we're now reincorporating psychedelics in our society or, will, or are about to be, because they will be approved as medicines in the next couple of years, believe it or not. Um, how can we use them safely? And uh, well, if we look at traditional cultures, and this is not just American Indians, but all over the world, they're usually used in a group there's always an elder involved who knows the knows the territory and can guide people if they get into trouble. They're never used casually or what we would say is recreationally. They're always used with a clear intention, and they're always surrounded by ritual. And I think if you follow those those characteristics, you have done you've gone a long distance toward um, diminishing the risk involved. Um, and uh, so so I wanted to learn what I could from Native Americans and South Americans also uh, about the indigenous use of psychedelics. But I don't, uh, in the end, ever take peyote. Uh, and the reason is that it's in very short supply. Um, and that Native Americans who really, uh, you know, it's at the center of this very important religious uh, observance. Um, It only grows in a very narrow band along the Rio Grande River between Texas and and Mexico. So I think the the way a a white person shows respect for this tradition and these people is simply not using peyote. Uh, And that's one of the reasons I use synthetic mescaline um, and also um, huachuma, this other cactus from South America that also produces mescaline uh, and is used in a different ceremonial context in Peru.
0: Well, I'm glad you brought up the issue of sustainability there, Michael, because it was something I wanted to ask you about. I know I opened in slightly tongue-in-cheek fashion by asking you about the toad, but I believe it's the case that there are some conservationists now warning about over-exploitation of the toad, and in this book, you actually really discuss the precarity, in a way, of each of these substances. You just mentioned there the parody cactus. One of the problems with it is that it takes a very long time to mature, And you also discuss um, caffeine production and how um, the coffee plant is now threatened by um, the climate crisis.
1: Yeah, I don't think we realize that our daily uh, uh, sip of coffee is endangered. And that by 2050, um, not that long from now, about half of the coffee producing regions of the world will no longer be able to support coffee. Uh, coffee needs very is very particular about its um, uh, rainfall, altitude, slope, soil type, and um, basically, coffee production has been moving higher and higher up the mountains as um, uh, as the climate warms to escape uh, coffee leaf rust, uh, a fungus that grows uh, that is the enemy of coffee and um, doesn't grow at high altitudes or at certain temperatures. Um, so there's great concern um, uh, among um, the coffee industry and, and coffee producers that um, coffee is going to be uh, rare and expensive um, and not too long. Um, so that is concerning. Yeah, and, and that's true, too, of the Sonoran Desert Toad. That's, that's the source of a, um, a pretty obscure um, psychedelic called 5-MEO-DMT that is uh, produced in the venom of these toads and they're essentially milked. If you squeeze them, they'll, they'll release this um, uh, liquid that then turns into a crystal that you can smoke. Um, but you know, there's synthetic sources of it. Um, and so people are, are encouraged to uh, leave the toads alone and um, if they want uh, to tr- try this drug and, and get the synthetic type.
0: So I think one of the challenges of Writing about psychedelic experiences, as famously, is, is their so-called ineffability. Um, writing about these experiences is something that you do in um, each of these books, and as as a writer myself and someone who also takes psychedelics, I've come up against these challenges as well. I'm curious as to your um, approach, Michael, in terms of how you describe some of these experiences, because I think your trip reports really um, hold up against, I think, you know um really any that we have in, in the kind of English drug canon. So I'm I'm curious as to what your what your process is, how you how you approach that
1: well, you know, I approached it with incredible um, trepidation. Um, I was very nervous. I knew that there was gonna be a chapter in How to Change Your Mind where I would have these experiences and describe them. And um and I had read countless trip reports, mostly online, and they're really, you know, unbearably boring. Usually it's like having someone describe their dreams to you. You know, it's seldom as compelling to you as it is to them. So I, I really didn't know how I was going to do this. And, um, it took a few tries. Um, but in the end I found a way to do it that worked. And, um, and it involved, uh, kind of, a, a breaking of the fourth wall, Um, And that there are these moments when these things are happening to me and things are getting kind of crazy where or I'm having insights that I know are that feel profound, but I know sound banal, like, you know, love is the most important principle in the universe um where I just turn to the audience and say acknowledge I know how this sounds I know I know how banal it is and then discuss banality what is banality well it's it's something that we're so familiar with that we've lost the power of it but it had power once and it could have power again and um and then and then go back into the experience so I keep sort of it's it's almost like someone who's having one of these experiences is lying there with a blindfold on and headphones. And every couple hours you like remove it and say something to your guide or, you know, check back in with reality. So I had this, there's this kind of rhythm uh, where I'm deep in these experiences describing this, you know, crazy stuff that's going through my head and uh, people turning into other people and, and uh, my guide turning into a Mazatec Indian and, um, but then, you know, I found that I could license what I was doing by having a frank conversation with the reader about how nuts it sounds. So for me, that kind of worked and, and seems to have worked for other people. It's, 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 I thought it'd be very difficult to write. But once I found my rhythm and my voice, I had the most fun I've ever had as a writer, I have to say. Um, it, because there's a kind of freedom for a journalist who normally is working in this tight box of fact-checkable facts, um, to to write down um, the narrative going through your head, um, much as a novelist does, as I imagine a novelist does, and there's a, there is a, a waking dream going on that you're describing and you're hearing dialogue and you're seeing characters and action and and so it was great pleasure to set down the the contents of my consciousness that way and um, uh, as long as I could excuse the insanity of it from time to time.
0: So we'll um, go to audience questions in a moment or two so if you do have a question please head up to the microphone that's in the centre aisle there. Um, While we're waiting for that Michael I thought I might just finish by um, asking you about where we go from here. We're in this moment I think of it almost feels like we're emerging out of what was called the psychedelic renaissance a few years ago into really I think the corporatization of some of these substances and you mentioned that it's highly likely that some of them most likely psilocybin and MDMA will become fairly widely available in the next few years for the treatment of mental disorders but it occurs to me really that your two books on drugs make the case for the availability of these substances legally to people who don't necessarily have a mental health diagnosis. Is is that a fair observation? Yeah.
1: Um, I think think that psychedelics have value for people who are not mentally ill, without question. And that the, uh, what one of my sources in How to Change Your Mind uh, spoke of the betterment of well people. I think that they are important tools for, uh, you know, uh, development. Um, They're important tools for, uh, spiritual exploration uh, as they have been for thousands of years. So I don't think um, you know approving them for psych- psychiatrists to uh, prescribe them is the only thing that needs to happen. Um, and that's why I'm encouraged by in the state of Oregon, you know in 2020 they passed a, a ballot initiative that will make um, psilocybin therapy quote unquote, uh, available to anyone over 21 uh, who wants it, whether they have a medical diagnosis or not. Um, and um, uh, and and there are other ballot initiatives in other states modeled on what Oregon is doing, and this will be available in Oregon next year. Um, so I do think they have a role um, for people who are not sick. I mean, I you know, learned a lot from these experiences, and I did not go into it because i had a psychiatric diagnosis um so you know there there are many ways they can be used and many uses to which they can be put they're remarkably fungible um in the same way that the experience is not predictable um you know what you take away from it is also not predictable and um Sometimes I've had experiences that were, eh, you know, nothing really profound and other times, you know, they really changed my understanding of something, of a relationship um, of my work. Um, so, uh, I, do, I, do, I am concerned about corporatization, but I think that these substances will be very hard to control. You know, mushrooms are going to keep growing where they grow, and they grow in a lot of places. Um, People need to get better at identifying them. Um, But as much as companies want to control psilocybin, uh, the mushroom will not be controlled. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that there was concern at the beginning that the underground, where a lot of this work now happens would be shut down by the legalization or medicalization of psychedelics. And I don't think anyone talks that way anymore. I think the demand is going to be such, and, and the motive so mixed, that um, they'll, they'll be, psychedelics will have many different, will, will, will be normalized along many different paths. The one I haven't mentioned that I think is really significant um, is we're going to have psychedelic churches, um, churches like the Native American church, where a psychedelic is considered the sacrament. And we already have two ayahuasca churches that, that operate legally in America. Uh, and there will be psilocybin churches, there may be LSD churches. You know, we have a very strict uh, First Amendment separation of church and state. And it's very hard for the government to say, no, that's not a real religion. Who's the government to say that? And the jurisprudence around religious freedom is so radical right now in America um, that I think this Supreme Court is going to be hard pressed to close down those churches as they uh, uh, as they reach their that court.
0: We'll uh, take an audience question now.
1: Hello, uh, hi Michael. Um, so I got a question for you. Hello. Uh, since so many people have experienced levels of depression over the last two years with the pandemic, uh, do you have any suggestions of how we can begin healing as a, so- as a society? Yeah. So, you know, there is a worldwide mental health crisis. Uh, it predates the pandemic, um, but it certainly got a lot worse. Um, rates of suicide are up. Rates of um, addiction are up. Alcohol consumption is way up. Um and uh, never has the need for new tools to help address depression and anxiety, I would add that uh, to the list, uh, been so keen as it is right now. And I think that, um, I don't think it's a coincidence that that these tools are, will appear at the time that they're appearing. One of the things that really struck me after the book came out um, was the openness of the psychiatric establishment to psychedelics. And I expected a lot of pushback um, from, you know, the American Psychiatric Association or um, National Institute of Mental Health, whatever it is. But that wasn't the case. And I understood after talking to some very prominent psychiatrists in America and in England that there is a pretty um, frank recognition in the mental health uh, treatment community that the tools that we have now, which consists mostly of SSRI antidepressants, are not adequate. Uh, that they don't work for a lot of people, that even, they worked better when they were first introduced than they do right now. And people don't like taking them. They don't like um, the uh, that they put on weight and the loss of libido and the, and the edge they take off of, of, of reality. And so, um, and they also don't deal with causes. They deal with symptoms. And here we have a substance that appears to deal with causes. Um, so that I think that... Um, they will be, if, if, if people can figure out the business model, which is a real challenge, I think that they will be adopted um, widely. And, uh, you know, given where we are with the pandemic and the rates of depression, um, and, you know, there are a lot of reasons to be depressed, too, in our world right now. And um, uh, so I think that uh, not a moment too soon.
0: We'll Take another question. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much, Michael. I wonder when you first started this, were you surprised at your first experiences? Oh yeah, I was. I was very surprised at my first experiences. Um, you know, I had, I had, as in, in my twenties, I'd messed around a little bit with mushrooms. I'd taken what people refer to as a museum dose, um, and it was. Inter- I had one, you know, very positive experience. One not very pleasant one where i i took some uh mushrooms walking around manhattan it's not not a good idea i don't recommend it um but when i took a high dose experience yeah i was i was really surprised uh at the power of it um and for me what i remember about that experience i was in my garden in connecticut and I had an experience of the plants in my garden. And, you know, if you know my work, I've been writing about plants for a long time. I'm very fond of plants. I give them a lot of credit for being, you know, agents of their own destiny and, and, and affecting us. But man, my plants were more alive than they'd ever been. And they were returning my gaze. And they were, um, uh, and I felt more in nature than I had ever felt before. I think, I think most of us, As human beings, you know we know we understand intellectually we're animals, uh, we are part of nature. But in our day to day life, we imagine ourselves as standing outside it, at least to some extent. And this was the first time I never felt that way, uh, at, at least since I was a kid. That that alienation was gone. I was one creature among many, and it was a it was a wonderful feeling, and it filled me with awe. So yeah, surprised. It was a big surprise.
0: Thank you, we'll take another question. Hi, uh, Chris here, visiting actually from San Francisco. Um, I had a question. uh, You talk a lot about the individual use of psychedelics for mental health issues, things like that. Um, Some of my most profound experiences have been in large groups of people in psychedelics. And I'm wondering if you see a prospect for normalization in those kind of group contexts, being from San Francisco, you probably know where I'm talking about, that, um, that in the same way that we normalize, say, having a drink at a at a festival or something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of interest in, and, and in fact, at UCSF, um, which is in San Francisco, um, there have been some uh, experiments with administering psychedelics in a group setting. You know, one of the barriers to access to psychedelics is the amount of therapeutic time it takes. You have two guides. Uh, usually a man and a woman with you the entire time. There's hours of preparation, there's the session, and then there's uh, so-called integration afterwards. So it's like, I don't know, 20 hours of two two therapists' time, uh, which is going to be very expensive. So there is interest in exploring uh, the potential of using psychedelics in a group setting or at least doing integration, you know, which is the processing of the experience afterwards in a group setting. Um, and you know, from what we know about how psychedelics are used in other cultures, uh, ayahuasca is always done in a in a group. Um, San Pedro is in a group setting. Uh, peyote is in a group setting. There's every reason to believe that it will work, um, and um, and that it could be a very powerful thing. I mean. There is this way in which people, I mean, I've sat in ayahuasca circles and there's a very interesting kind of communication that goes on among people in that situation, Um, leaving the group and coming back to it. um, And I think, you know, we are social beings and to harness that power in the interest of healing seems to me a a, a worthwhile goal. I think it's, it's, it's hard for the uh, the regulators to get their head around that. Um, you know, drugs are usually administered (laughs) to one body at a time. Um, so there's no real model for doing drug trials for group therapy. And, um, but I think that we will see it being used that way because once it's approved, psychiatrists will have a lot of freedom in how they administer it. And, uh, and I think we will see group experiences emerging.
0: I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, I, I've spoken to um, Dr. Robert Gordon, who was involved with really some of the first um, psychedelic drug trials in Australia in the 1960s, and he was experimenting with LSD, and actually they were all group sessions um, involving patients across multiple diagnoses. So it's interesting that we we do feel, in a way, locked in with the new clinical trials into you know what's called the sort of the, the dyad, so one male and one female therapist yeah. to one patient model.
1: Well, there were studies of groups in the 60s, um, and these were, you know, before the the current model of how you do a, you know, a supposed gold standard trial. Um, there was there were creativity studies, in fact, uh, where a group of people in, involved in creative work, uh, writers, architects, um, computer programmers. Uh, were all given a medium dose of lsd and um and they were in a group and they were told after they'd kind of tripped for a while and they were coming down a little bit to go to their work tables and work on their problems and um uh, so there are some models there were studies that were done then but um in recent times not so much but it's coming uh I think it's coming and i think it i think it could be very interesting and 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 cost effective
0: i think we've have- Nope, we're out of time. Um, so all that remains for me to do is to um, invite everyone here to warmly thank you, Michael, for joining us today. It's been a fascinating conversation, deeply grateful.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's so great to be with you, uh, even remotely. I wish I could um, sign books and meet you all individually, but it'll have to wait till my, my next visit to Australia.
0: Maybe 2025, Michael, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll lock it in now. <laughs> thank okay, you. Okay, I'm
1: there.